0: Hello there. I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. As with my Monetizing Media newsletter, my goal is to dissect business opportunities across the media, entertainment, and gaming sector. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in each episode as we dig into a case study on their company, an investment thesis they have, or other tactical insights on business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. Joining me on today's episode is my friend Pippa Lam, as we discuss one of her big investment theses right now, the verticalization of social media. Pippa is a partner at Suite Capital, a seed stage VC firm dedicated to consumer mobile startups that was launched by the founders of the massively successful mobile games company King. Pippa splits her time between Suite's offices in London and Los Angeles. She previously worked at El Catterton and J.P. Morgan and graduated from Oxford and Harvard Business School. Well, thanks for joining me today, Pippa. I'm excited to chat more.
1: I'm excited to chat. Good to, thanks for having me, Eric.
0: You've brought up this investment thesis you've been pursuing of the verticalization of social media, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to dig into it more with you today. In a way, we saw this in the early days of social media and online communities, a lot of very clustered interest-based you know whether it was forums or mm. you know more niche kind of social communities online um, and that gave way to these massive generalist platforms like Facebook and Twitter etc so it's it's interesting now that you see a cycle happening of, of shifting mm. back to that tell me a little bit why that's happening
1: yeah it's really funny uh, that you you mention it because actually yeah as you contextualize it historically We've gone from a position of, you know, Internet 1.0 when you had, you know, forums, you know, the mums nets of the world, like the very you know, niche communities who clustered around certain topics were then kind of displaced by, as you say, these quote unquote, like giant networks, which effectively were, you know, acting as kind of directories. So I think one theme that we've been tracking that I think is almost you know, as you say, going back to that initial clusters of interest groups, uh, is this verticalization of social, you know, in this, I think, first chapter of, of the social network, it was very much around, you know, breadth and volume, you know, platforms in at some level were you know, a virtual directory for having as many people as possible, after which users are expected to filter down their network to, you know, smaller interest groups or specific communities. So. of, as you say, a reverse of of kind of how the forum had originally begun, but I think, you know, why that's changed, there's several reasons. I think that there's a little bit of just exhaustion around some of these more general platforms. You know, I I think that type of, you know, extreme volume on, on a network has just stopped serving its consumer in a way that is really effective. You know, there's too much noise that comes with that amount of breadth and volume, you know, consumers have been overexposed over advertised to and now they really only want to spend quality time with the communities that they care most about so yeah from an investment perspective um, and you know a market watch perspective what's that what that has meant for me is looking at platforms that are again you know built for specific or or niche communities and i would just you know caveat here that you know niche does not mean small it means focused Uh, it means offering the users you know greater depth and connection it's kind of a trust thing, you know. It's it's much more about authenticity versus versus volume now.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I wonder if part of this is just a um, a kind of aging with the next stage of the internet, or having you know, <laughs> having had this period of time where we we're just so fascinated by the concept that we could all connect in the same place online, right? And and everyone mm-hmm. we meet, we could you know add them on Facebook or wherever else, and and stay connected them forever and perhaps the novelty of that is wearing off and it just seems kind of unnecessary or silly right and there's kind of this pendulum swing back to you know our core relationships
1: yeah for sure i definitely think that's a part of it i think that there is you know um a maturing of this you know of the social networks themselves but also how users interact with that and as you point to there was perhaps this novelty of, of everyone being listed in a directory somewhere Um, and, and that's kind of shifted, you know, I think that at some point, you know, Facebook in particular decided to sacrifice being niche and designed for its original user base of students to, to really be a land grab and, and kind of a, a yellow page or a directory for everyone in the world, you know, and I think it's very hard to, to balance both a function of intimacy with, that desire for, you know, land grabbing volume and breadth and just having everyone have an online profile. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think that, you know, vertical can also speak to function, right? So it's not just simply about vertical as user groups. So, you know, one example I'm happy to chat about is a company called Peanut, which is a social network for women who are going through different life stages. You know, another company that I've worked with is vertical in the sense of its its function. So your uh, you know the individuals are from a very wide demographic, but you know they're coming to that product with a very specific function or use case in mind uh, that they're not currently able to to find elsewhere on, say, for example, you know, a Facebook or a a uh, a network that has such scale. So mm-hmm. it's it's more about being specific and deliberate about you know either the group or about the function and not trying to be everything to everyone.
0: Yeah. T- talk to me more about whether it's Peanut or, or some of these other vertical social networks that you're seeing
1: pop up. So just to give you a bit of context, so Peanut is a company which is a social network primarily for women um, going through different life stages. Now that could be anything from the fertility journey, you know, motherhood specifically, or even menopause. And I think the easiest way to think about it as it relates to vertical social networks is, is how Michelle Kennedy, the founder of Peanut, describes it. In her words, like we can't expect women to use the same platform that their Uncle John uses to share his holiday photos, their teenage cousin uses to sell his Supreme sweatshirt as the same platform that they're going to be, be on and talk about their miscarriage. You know, there's just fundamentally um, a disconnect there in terms of why you're drawn to a product and the function that it's serving um so so i think in that way you know then this speaks to a little bit about what we were saying earlier about how you know we as users have matured along with the networks i think you know the function itself of consumer social has evolved from you know something which is purely transactional or directory like you know storing your photos to something that's actually more like emotionally engaging it's less about transactional value as i say but you know the psychological relationship you have with people in that community. And that only really works if you can go at depth. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Clay Christensen and his disruption theory. And I find that one way to think about it is, you know, what is the job that's being done by these uh, social networks? Generally, there's like a functional, there's a social, there's emotional dimension. And if you think about that with consumed social, you know, the quote unquote job to be done of these consumer social companies has changed quite significantly over over recent years. So just going back to, to Peanut, functionally Peanut's you know job to be done or, or the the reason that users are hiring Peanut uh, to do a job for them is to connect with other women. You know it's it's far more powerful than um, purely the functional, where perhaps in a Facebook you're just wanting to you know keep track of who you've met or or, or share a photo. And that's why i think that vertical network's powerful because as a result you're you're really solving for that you know depth and quality of interaction you're not competing with simply other online directories but maybe like hanging out with girlfriends or having a heartfelt chat uh with you know a family member or even like a therapy session the role that peanut can play psychologically in its users lives is just far more substantial and therefore valuable to to us as investors, than something which probably just scratches the surface in terms of engagement and, and retention.
0: What's the role going forward you see for the Facebooks and Snapchat, the generalist or broader based social networks? I mean, do you see this as they will decline, there's kind of a cannibalization into amount of time spent on them, or they still have a role? And, and how effective will they be at competing in this? Obviously, Facebook has made a big push into Facebook groups, I mm-hmm. think, recognizing to some extent that uh, these changes are underway.
1: You know what? I think it's really tough because I think that a lot of these networks, as you say, are trying to backpedal. You know, taking Facebook as the example, they they really made a conscious decision to sacrifice depth for breadth. And, you know, once you've done that and you've created that psychological relationship with your user, I think it's... It's very difficult to return to a place where where you actually have that intimacy that some of these other you know instantly vertical so- social communities um, can create from day one. Again, going to that example that Michelle from Peanut gave, you're not if you have a historical association with the platform being somewhere you know your uncle shares his holiday pics or you know your young cousin is you know, selling whatever the supreme jumper then it's not gonna be the one that you think of going to when you've had a really traumatic experience. In her example, perhaps a user has suffered a miscarriage. So I think it does leave the Facebooks, um, the Twitters, to some extent, um, in a bit of a a tricky position. Uh, And I think actually Facebook is more exposed to this um, than than Twitter, which I would say is still, you know, relatively more confined along a, a specific function versus Facebook, which is trying to be everything for everyone. So I think I think the clue is really in their M&A strategy. If if you look at Facebook's history in recent years of, of how it's gone about making acquisitions, a lot of them have pointed to acquiring what they perceive to be very fast, threatening, growing vertical communities, either clustered around an, a user base or a function. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, What you know, their acquisition of WhatsApp is an example of that, right? One of the uh, important KPIs for social networks is how much media or how many photos are being shared between users. Now, for Facebook, as somewhere that's always been a place for for friends to share and you know comment on photos, uh, it's rumored that around the time of the WhatsApp acquisition, there were more, let's call it media, you know, photos, voice notes, etc being shared on whatsapp than there were on facebook and instagram combined so for for facebook they really needed to basically acquire um, whatsapp and put a a stop to that that growth of media sharing because that that's facebook's kpi for growth uh, or at least it was at the time so so for me i think look they're in a really tricky position and and that's why i think uh, we're certainly quite bullish on on how you know M and A is going to take place in the space. It's much easier to buy or acquire a, a community than work from a very d- general community and and backtrack into something that's extremely niche. Just looking at how Facebook's tried and failed uh, is is evidence of that.
0: How do you look at the relationship between niche and private in in talking mm-hmm. about whether it's you know a social network? just for women, a social networks like Strava for cyclists, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. What's the relationship between great anyone can join you know, this is just about shared interest versus part of this is actually in some way having curated um, community, which which perhaps is is more of what Facebook sought to attack with Facebook groups.
1: Sorry, privacy in the sense of um...
0: uh, pr- private in the sense of not anyone can just, you know, download the app and join the conversation or see what you're posting. The idea that there's kind of a private community that you define.
1: Got it. For me, I think a bit less around privacy. I mean, I think that there are really interesting examples of that at the moment. Um, I know you've had a, in a previous episode, you've talked about Clubhouse. Um, I think Clubhouse is a very recent example of how do you balance and look? It's super early stage, but how does how do Paul Rohan and the team balance uh, scale and exclusivity? So I think maybe a, a bit less is privacy, but you know how do you how do you scale something who in some ways core value is derived from some form of exclusivity or privacy if you want to define it that way? I, I think the other conflict or contradiction that you sometimes need to balance and we've mentioned in a previous discussion is how do you balance being a a niche community with with liquidity right and I think that it's it's a balancing act Um, you need enough people who want that as I used before you know job to be done for there to be enough liquidity to 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 build a community around it you know ultimately if there's not enough liquidity or the community isn't big enough do you really have a product there um, and I would say it does vary a lot between social categories. Um, you know, I think the most clear example of where this can be a, a real conflict is the dating market, right? Dating apps, mm-hmm. you know, li- liquidity there is a constant struggle. Um, and if if you look at categories where verticalization of social has struggled, you know, dating is definitely one of them. You know, I'm really interested to see how this plays out because I know from speaking with founders in the space. Um, that there are vertical communities that have not yet been fully served by existing platforms. You know, just last week I was speaking to a founder um, who expressly focused uh, is expressly focused on building connections platform for people of color, um, being shocked at how dire her own user experiences were, being segmented on the algorithms pushed out by the main dating players. At some level, dating you know, li- liquidity is a real issue, and I think it helps to think. When you're going through different categories, you know how is the quality of this product being judged, and you know for dating, by definition, you do need volume and breadth. Whereas on the other hand, there may be communities which are you know less about breadth and more about depth. You know, going back to the peanut example.
0: In thinking of other types of media like publishing, when you anchor in depth over breadth, it also tends to go in line with a change in business model from of, you know, kind of dependence on advertising to Mm -hmm. um, incorporating, if not entirely focusing on subscription or other audience revenue models where users are paying directly. In looking at kind of different startups focused on a a niche use case or, or demographic and engaging them very deeply, how does it change what you're seeing as a successful business model?
1: Yeah, look, I think that for any consumer social uh, business, your monetization really depends on both the function and demographic of your of your user base, you know, traditionally, you're going to have something which is a combination or a choice between subscription, you're gonna have a freemium, you're gonna have something which has in-app purchases. Um, And it's really hard to give one, a kind of one hard and fast rule for all. I think that that speaks to whether it's something that's hyper vertical or something that's more general. The DNA of sweet capital was obviously gaming. And I think that, uh, you know, using the example of Candy Crush, uh, which is obviously one of King's, you know, it's most famous uh, product, it was a really interesting choice there between, you know, how do you balance um your your monetization strategy to really fit around the type of user dynamic you're having. And for King, it was all about not quote unquote capping the whales, particularly in, in, in terms of how we look at companies and how we judge things like payments or or monetization relating to consumer social. We do borrow from from gaming a lot. And there are a lot of similarities um with how you monetize
0: Uh, talk to me more about how you are evaluating the startups within this thesis uh, that pop up and, and how much of the metrics you're looking at the consumer behavior comes from similar sort of analysis with mobile gaming companies
1: i think we've talked a lot already about how yeah what is the psychological um, role that this product is is creating for the user and I think that's tied very closely to how we how we track or, or analyze a product number one top metric we look at is engagement and retention you know what does that mean um, and I can give you a, hit, a rundown of or a kind of hit list for each KPI but at it's most basic it's you know it's about user love you know how sad would users be if this product no longer existed what type of relationship do they have with a product? What's user psychology? What role are you fulfilling in their lives that was previously partly met, mostly unsuccessfully elsewhere? You know, we'd much rather see a product that has limited users, but with high engagement than a product with lots of users and low engagement. Um, so, you know, specifically in, in t- types of ways that we track this, you know, there's the usual retention cohorts, you know, how often are your customers coming back on a seven-day, 30-day, you know, 90-day basis? Industry standards say you know 30-40 percent at the lower end of best in class. But of course, again, you know, it speaks it depends slightly on the type of category that you're looking at. Is
0: um, that 30 or 40 percent for seven-day or 30 day or 90 day? That's days?
1: that's typically around the 30 day. Um, and and you know we invest really early so sometimes you know products don't actually have enough retention cohort data for us to go through yet so another great way to look at it is like take your top 20 percent of users that you've got so far you know this is the early indications you have towards who are going to be your your core audience Like you know, what is their average session length session time like how much content do they go through um you know one company we, we looked at you know, they'd only produced one hour of content and they were testing this out with users. What was really exceptional there was that 50% of users were completing that one hour of content within a day. And I think even more than that, were completing it, you know, within something like three or four hours or in one sitting. Now we're looking for kind of standout KPIs. It could be that, it could be, you know, your 30 your, your day retention that show that there is something exceptional in how users are valuing your product. You know, ultimately time is your most expensive asset. How quickly and how early can you tell that, you know, how much how much users are willing to give up their time to spend on your platform? And then I have a few other, I mean, there are a few other ones that yeah. I'm happy to cover. Um, you know, what is your viral factor? Um, put it this way, you know, for every user you're acquiring, how many, how many new users do they bring? Um, you know, what is your organic growth? Um, you know, how? You know, we, we talked about this with with Facebook, and for them, it was sharing media or sharing photos, and they they noticed that WhatsApp was creeping up and, and actually overtaking them. Um, at some point, for every um, every friend you add on a, on a social network, that's going to help you retain better. So, and that can look very different. There might be a social network where if I bring on two friends, you know, that's enough for me to actually stay on for you know the next thirty days and engage with them. For others, maybe you need to actually add, you know, ten to twenty friends. I don't know what Instagram's is, but for you to retain as an individual, you want to be bringing like ten to twenty friends at least uh, onto the platform. So yeah, and, and you it measure this
0: quantitatively as the K factor, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And it's some it's something that you know I've certainly le- learned a lot about from from my colleagues who who grew up and their DNA is is really gaming because uh, for gaming that's that's absolutely um, something that you want to look at time spent in an app uh, and also how important um, you know how many other people you're bringing in to play the game or, or be a part of the network and then obviously you know last but not least is. You know, you could never avoid the good old ratio of LTV to CAC. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, uh, I asked my colleague who, who's responsible for scaling um, growth marketing at, at King, okay, give me your absolute best in class, you know LTV to CAC for consumer social. And he literally was like, you know, infinite. Um, <laughs> it really it's less about the absolute number, but I think, For us, it's, you know, you're measuring how much can you afford to grow versus profitability. And I think, you know, different companies have different um, targets for their, you know, lifetime value to customer acquisition costs at different parts. Like maybe at the beginning, you're solving for super high LTV to CAC because you just grow, grow, grow. And maybe later you're actually more concerned about profitability and monetizing, in which case, um, you know, you may reset that LTV to um, CAC at a different level. I mean, those are just a few things, and I could I could literally go on all day. So, we'll try to try to cap my exhaustive list.
0: No, I think <laughs> that, that, those are helpful and certainly key ones that come to mind. You know, in, in thinking about any well, really any consumer yeah. startup, but but especially in a social context. Yeah, um, yeah, for well, sure. Well, Pippa, thanks so much for for sharing this investment thesis with us and and walking us through some of the metrics you're tracking.
1: No worries. It's been fun. Thanks so much for thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media podcast. To keep learning more tactical insights on the media, entertainment, and gaming industry, subscribe to my Monetizing Media newsletter at monetizingmedia.com.